out in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So, church, needless to say, there's a lot in this passage. (laughs) It starts off with uh, telling what happened to the fig tree from Doug's passage last week, and then from there, Jesus goes and he talks about prayer and uh, faith, moving mountains, then the authorities come to ask him a question, by whose authority to do this? He shoots back with the John question, uh, by what authority did John do these things? And then they uh, move into this parable about the vineyard, and it ends with this thing about a stone. And uh, uh, you're asking, how does all this fit together? Uh, which is what I've been asking myself this week, too. Um, you're asking, how is Kevin going to cover all this in less than 30 minutes? Uh, that's also a question I've been asking myself this week. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, this morning, we're, we're not going to address the section on prayer. My apologies. Everybody together say, ah, ah. Okay, all right. Um, the reason is because we've already covered that just within uh, this year, actually, when we did the When Jesus Says Amen series. Uh, you can look back on the podcast on our website to uh, February 26th, and Doug will tell you everything you want to know about this passage, okay? Um, but everything else, 
I think, frames really well around this parable. And so we're going to kind of focus on the parable here, uh, the parable of the tenants. And I hope you'll see that not only does everything else kind of hang on that, uh, but this is the perfect Christmas parable. And that will become evident soon, but first let's pray together. Father, we commit this time to you. Um, We don't just want this to be a a vain exercise in listening. Uh, We want this to be... Um, by your spirit, a motivation for, for knowing and loving and doing that you would change us, Lord. Uh, we could sit under a, a thousand sermons and not change. Or we could sit under one, even a bad one, that by your spirit you would come and change us through. And so, Lord, keep um, working in our hearts in the custom-made ways that you have already intended to do this morning. And we pray that these would not be my words, but your words and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so you guys are about to head into the uh, gift uh, opening season of the year, and I felt like I know that that's coming, and that's game time, and it's probably good to prepare a little bit for that, and so I want to give you guys some help. Sometimes we want to look at gifts and kind of understand what they are. Maybe if we don't know what they are by looking, we might pick them up and shake them, but uh, you guys are going to be quick on this. You're going to be able to tell just by looking, right? Okay, so what is that? Well, that could, could be anything. It's a box, right? I mean, there could be, uh, that could be candy in there. It could be an iPhone. It could be jewelry. We don't know, right? What's that? <laughs> Just going to take a guess here and say that might be a frying pan, right? Okay. All right. What's, what's this one? Well, again, it's an interesting cubed box, right? could be anything, right? Uh, what's this one? <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure that one's a bike, right? Um, The point is this, that sometimes what's underneath is obscure, and sometimes it's clear as day. That's true also of Jesus' parables. You guys know that that when when Jesus talks about how he tells a parable, he usually says that uh, he's doing this so that his people will get it. They'll unwrap it. They're going to know what it is. But the people on the outside, it's just a box. They, They won't know what it is. And usually when Jesus tells a parable, that's the case. It's just a box. But guys, this one's a bike. This one's one where everybody looking at it can tell immediately what it is. Everyone, anyone with an earshot, insiders and outsiders, good guys and bad guys, everybody's going to understand what this is about. In fact, the parallel passage, Jesus, even just to make sure that they all get it, he puts it even stronger by saying to the, the Pharisees, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So he's calling the Pharisees out. The Pharisees know he's talking about them. The Pharisees know that everybody else knows that he's talking about them. In fact, that's what probably keeps them from arresting him on the spot because they fear the crowds because they know that everyone knows what he's talking about. So let's look at this parable. And I want to do so in light of the the Christmas season, having realized that this is a pretty good parable for Christmas uh, with these three ideas. Christmas is, did that last time too there. Christmas is the story of a patient landlord. Christmas is the story of a beloved son. And Christmas is a fork in the road. That's our outline this morning, okay? Uh, The first one is this. Christmas is the story of a patient landlord. Uh, Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved 
to another place. Jesus is describing a, a typical situation in Israel at that time because a lot of the land in the north was owned by wealthy merchants in the south. And we see this in the parable. We've got this, this landowner who is doing everything that's needed to make sure that this is going to be a successful vineyard, a successful crop. And we see that he, he does the watchtower and he plants the, the seeds and he, he digs the pit and he puts a wall around it. He does everything right. But um, I discovered in uh, preparing for this that it, uh, if you're starting a new vineyard, it t- it's about a four-year process before you're going to get the first harvest. And so he now steps away from it and lets, he hires it out to other guys who are going to manage it and get it, uh, get it through these first four years and, and now we'll have a harvest. So right from the start, everyone would have known exactly what this vineyard represents. This one is for everyone that was there. It's not for us, but for everyone there, this one's a bike. They look at it, it's very obvious, and the reason is the words that Jesus uses are identical. They're in a different order, but they are identical to uh, the words of Isaiah 5. Let me put that up here. In Isaiah 5, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Um, Jesus uses the same exact words that are used in the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's the same, same words that are used, okay? And the audience will f- know then from the very first words that this is connected, these are connected ideas, um, and they will know then that this vineyard represents Israel. They know that because, in, among other places, in Isaiah 5, it's spelled out. Look at verse 5, kind of makes it obviously clear, for the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel. So when Jesus starts off with the same words, everybody gets it, especially the Pharisees who know their Bible. They obviously understand that this is about Israel. And that's a problem because in Isaiah 5, things do not end well. Um, It says in Isaiah 5 that God makes all the preparations, but the the vineyard only yields bad fruit. The the Hebrew says it, it yields stinking things. It yields rotten fruit. So he destroys the vineyard. Now, in the parable, it's a little different because he's not calling out the vineyard. The problem in the parable is what? It's the people in charge of the vineyard, right? It's the tenants. So he's not calling out Israel. He's calling out Israel's leadership in this place. Verse 2 says, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. He wants to find out how his batch came out. He wants his messenger to bring back samples. This is well within his right. He's the owner. He's the authority to do these things, right? This is his right. But here's the problem. Somewhere in the course of the last four years, these tenants have gotten this notion that maybe they should own the place. And so when a string of guys show up to collect the rent, they say, in effect, what authority are you? You have no business here. Don't tell us what to do. And they send them off or they injure them or they kill them. And I know when we look at that, we see the ugliness of that. These guys are a landlord's nightmare, right? But I think it's helpful for us to look that attitude square in the face and say, where might these guys be us? Because sometimes if you're around something long enough, you start thinking that you maybe have the right to call the shots in it. You start thinking that it, maybe it's yours. We see that in weird places. We see it in the person at work who has been there forever and they started getting really territorial about their siloed position and whenever a new idea comes up they answer it with I've been here 20 years and we've never done that before right 
or it might be um, the, the family in maybe not this church, but some church you've been in that's generational. The family's been here for four generations, and you have to get permission from them before you move the memorial furniture in the foyer or the memorial chandelier is dusted, right? Or it might be that, that neighbor in your neighborhood who's he's been there for like four decades, and he can tell you exactly how your landscaping and every other landscaping in the neighborhood does not match HOA code, right? Now, these are folks, we would roll our eyes at these people, right? That's definitely not us, sure, right? So, but we'd roll our eyes at them. And we'd say people that treat the company or the church or the neighborhood like it's their right to call the shots because they've been around it long enough to let time shift their mentality from stewardship to ownership. But that can become our attitude too with pretty much anything can become our attitude with our car, our job, our house, our position, our status, our finances, checkbook, time, anything. If you hang around something long enough, you start thinking that it belongs to you. Do you know that there's studies that have actually been, been done uh, with retail that say that if, uh, if you're in a department store and you actually touch something, you're like 50% more likely to buy it. And... The longer you touch something, the more likely you are to buy it. So if you're holding on to something, there's actually, they've, they've done studies, there's actually emotional receptors in your brain that are going off that are making you love this thing and want it more, right? They actually did some studies where they had people that held an item for 10 seconds and other people that held it for 30 seconds. They were auction items. And then when they went to bid on the items, the people who had held it for 30 seconds bid significantly more for the same items. The longer you hold on to something, right? the more emotionally attached we get to it, we start picturing it as ours. So if you want to save money around the holidays, just when you walk through um, Concord Mills, just don't touch anything, right? (laughs) Just keep your hands in your pockets. It's good. You'll save a lot of money. When we connect with something for any length of time, we might start gravitating towards this kind of mentality. Mine, 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 which is a silly word for Christians because we don't own any of it. We're stewards of the whole thing, right? But if you can ignore the owner, then you can pretend that you're the owner. When we, this is what it looks like, I think, for, for us. It looks, we, when we moved to North Carolina, um, Bev and I, we, we saw the house that God provided as his just absolute, gracious, just wonderful blessing on our lives that he gave us exactly what we needed. And we, 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 we prayed for the house. We prayed in the house. We prayed through every room of the house about how God would use this to advance his kingdom purposes, right? But, you know, going on 10 years later, <laughs> um, more often than not, I think I probably am more likely to view my house as my fortress, my castle of my own comfort, my man cave, my right to my own privacy. Notice all the my, my, my. The longer I'm connected to something, the more likely I am to want to grab a hold of it and picture it as mine and not as something that I'm stewarding, right? Do I keep committing my, my house, my checkbook, my car, my stuff, whatever, to his purposes, how I can steward it best for his purposes, or do I forget the owner's right to it and start thinking that it's my right? It's not mine. Mine is a silly word for a steward, but if I treat the Lord as an absent landlord instead of as the rightful Lord of the harvest, as the rightful owner, then I can start to exert my own authority over the things that I would call my possessions. For the Pharisees, 
I think it's their power, it's their status, it's their authority, it's their ministry positions, their careers, for which they say, mine. Forgetting all their authority is derivative, forgetting who it is that they were meant to serve in the first place, forgetting that they don't have the right to call the shots, it was never their right to begin with. So let me ask you this, take an inventory of all the things that you, and here are the air quotes, all the things that you possess, all the things that you own, And ask yourself, who really has the right to call the shots in those areas? Who has authority over those things? That is the question that the Pharisees come to Jesus with back in verse 27 of of the prior chapter. They say, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you the authority to do this? The implied answer is, by the way, I mean, this is not just an open-ended question. This is a very accusatory question. The, The implied answer is, we didn't give you any authority. We're the ones who dole that out. How'd you become king then? Well, I didn't vote for you. You guys get that reference? Okay, never mind. Um, They're reminding Jesus that he has no official status in Jerusalem. They know he is not ordained or accredited or by any recognized institution in Jerusalem, and so their question is meant to really just be a reminder of that. It's a dig. It's a slam. You, Jesus, have no authority here because if you did we would have given it to you jesus represents a threat to their authority who are you to come in here and tell us what to do they don't recognize his authority any more than the tenants in jesus's parable recognize the authority of all the messengers that the owner of the vineyard keeps sending and sending and sending and jesus asked them a question to test them and i don't this sounds like it might be um him getting off topic but no he's right on task on this He says, well, where do you think John the Baptist's authority came from? If you'll answer that, then I'll answer your question. John was part of a long line of rejected messengers that are represented right here in the parable. The master of the vineyard sent messenger after messenger. Verse 3 says this. This is what happened to the first messenger. They seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And then this happens. He sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another. This one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. Where did John's authority come from? The same place that all of those other messengers came from. This is Jesus accusing these guys as the current generation of a long history of bad shepherds in Israel. He's saying, in effect, you remember Isaiah? the one that I just quoted, you sawed him in half. Do you remember Habakkuk and Jeremiah? You stoned those guys to death. Do you remember Amos and Ezekiel? They were tortured before you killed them. You killed Zechariah in the temple. The landlord sent you messenger after messenger after messenger for hundreds of years and you rejected them, tortured them, killed them. The author of Hebrews summarizes this so beautifully in Hebrews 11, he says, some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. 
God sent warning after warning, messenger after messenger, right? And in the parable, there's this one word I love that even seemingly kind of ties it all together. In verse 4, you see that there's that one messenger that says they struck this man on the head. The, the word there is in Greek. It's only used this place in the Bible. Um, it has to refer to some kind of head injury, but when we look at other places in, uh, where in the Greek that word is used, it can be used to refer to decapitation. Does that sound familiar? That ties directly to Jesus' question about John's authority. He says, John's authority, where was it from? Well, he was another one of the messengers that was sent from the landlord. He was sent with the landlord's authority. And how did you receive him? You cut his head off. God has sent them plenty of messengers and a patient God who has every right to level the place after the first messenger is humiliated keeps sending warnings. Your rent is due. Your rent is due. And they keep tearing up the invoice. Your rent is due. And he keeps patiently sending another one after another. A less patient Martin Luther said this. He said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. A much more patient creator and owner of the vineyard shows a whole lot more restraint here. But we have to remember that the story of Christmas is teed up by this backstory of disobedience, this backstory of rejection, and in the midst of that, this backstory of God's patience, right? Secondly, the Christmas story is the story of a beloved son. And verse 6 says this, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. We have to remember, Christmas is not this happy birth announcement on a, on a festive night to uh, some happy music and some angelic uh, choristers. This is, uh, this is much more of a, of a military thing. This is, this is the sending of the last messenger into the camp. This is the sending of the last messenger to the enemy. And anyone paying attention would have known clearly who the son in the parable was. This one's a bike also. It's just so clear to all of them because he calls him a beloved son. And if you've been paying attention to the Gospel of Mark, you already know that we, we know who the beloved son is. Mark 1.11 says, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Mark 9 says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the final word. All the other messengers have been leading up to this one. No one has more authority in the vineyard. And so I have to imagine that even though Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by whose authority I do these things, then when he goes into the story, they all must have gone, oh, that's by whose authority he does these things. He put it in a story to answer the question. Do you want to know where my authority comes from? Let me be clear. This is my temple. This is my vineyard. You work for me. You're questioning my authority, but now I am here to question your authority. I am the heir, representative, and son of the master of the vineyard. And here is how you will respond to that. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. Which is, of course, when you think about that, right, for just a moment, that is a ridiculous idea, right? This is pirates thinking. This is, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, picture... This never happening, that a, a, a dad would go, wow, my son has been killed, and wow, I, I, don't have any inher- I don't have anybody to leave my inheritance to. Who will I leave it? You know, I'll leave it to the murderers. That would be a good call, right? That would never happen. This is crazy, unless there is a possibility that they think that the owner is dead too. Maybe they haven't seen him in four years or so, and so if the owner's dead and the son is dead, then 
It's possible that this could be deemed ownerless property and the current tenants might have first right of refusal to it as long as they don't get caught for murder, right? But either way, the, the point is that the tenants are foolish. The tenants are evil. The tenants are, uh, their actions are serving the purposes of the story because they're setting up what the real authorities in Israel are about to do to the real son. So they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. But if that feels like ridiculous thinking to you, here's something even, I think, more ridiculous, at least on paper. Why would the father send his son into verifiably hostile territory and expect a different outcome from all the other outcomes of all the other messengers that have been wounded and killed? Why wouldn't he send an army into his vineyard? Why would he just send his son? I mean, seriously, why would the father do this, right? Why would the father essentially send his son into the setting knowing that he's going to be killed? I think that's a fair question. How could he? You see where this is going, right? How could he send his own beloved son into a den of murderers in the full awareness of his death? But that's exactly what God did. The Christmas story is packaged up in verse 6. It says, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved He sent him last of all. That is the manger, right? But the Christmas story is also verse 8. So they took him out and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The manger and the cross are one and the same story. It's a connected story. It's one and the same plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son up to death. That's how much he loved the world. Those two are connected. When we read the Christmas story, that means that the context is not this serene, silent night scene of peace. It is a scene of war. It enters the storyline at this place of tragedy. It's the point in the battle where God has every right to send a tornado to destroy the whole thing, and instead he sends a baby, and he cues the angels to proclaim peace on earth and to sing about God and sinners reconciled, that in the very midst of, of rebellion, he would provide the means of peace. One of my, uh, one of my seminary professors, mine and Rick's, was, uh, was R.C. Sproul. Uh, a lot of you might have heard that he, he died on Thursday afternoon. Um, I was reading one of his books Thursday morning, and uh, he said this, if God himself came to earth today and people were given power to destroy him, he would surely be put to death. I am not speaking theoretically when I say that because it actually happened. The world is not indifferent towards God like we would want it to be, like we would pretend to be. We have, the Bible says we have an active bias against God. Because if he's in charge, if Jesus is in charge, then guess what that means? You're not. And that goes against all of our modern concepts of self-actualization and the ethic of to thine own self be true and, and all the rest, right? These tenets reveal our attitudes as well apart from Christ, that we're in need of a Savior because we need someone to break through all of our hostility to God. I read this week is that sin could be just described simply as when you and God disagree. When you and God disagree, that's sin. Because when you and God disagree, guess who's right? Hint, it's not you. <laughs> and God, in the midst of that, sends what? Sends a lightning bolt? Sends a consuming fire, sends a plague of locusts. No, he sends a baby. 
He sends his own beloved son, knowing that he will be ignored and rejected and killed, and then that he will be raised and trusted in and worshipped. That in Jesus, God's people would have this opportunity to accept the terms of the peace treaty, which, by the way, are very unilateral. This is God's promise to us, and we just grab a hold of it in faith. And so that means that this story of a patient landlord and the story of a beloved son is really, a, it, it leads us to a decision. It's a, it's a fork in the road. It demands a response. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus judges the tenants and then the image shifts and he says, haven't you read this passage of scripture? And this is interesting. He's like, isn't it obvious? He's, haven't you read this? And of course they have read this because this, uh, uh, this is one of the Hallel Psalms which they would have sung the week of Passover. So not only have, do they know this, but they've heard it that week and they probably know the tune. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the imagery shifts from vines to stones, but the, the, the common thread is rejection, right? But then he adds something because there's a twist, there's a reversal. This accomplishes the reversal of the parable in saying that the one who is cursed, the one who is rejected, the one who is rebelled against still wins the day. In fact, in the end, everything orients around this stone. Everything orients around the cornerstone. And so you call this a fork in the road. You've got a, uh, it, this, it calls for a decision. Will you choose to orient your life around this stone or not? What's funny is scholars don't exactly agree on what this cornerstone is. The word used there is not the same word that's used of cornerstone in places like First Peter and Ephesians and other places. We're not sure. Is this the first stone of the building? Is this the last stone of the building that kind of locks everything together? Is this the top stone of the arch that holds the arch physically in place? Is this the, the, the fanciest stone that kind of caps the top of the building? We don't know. What we do know is it's the most important stone in the building. That's what's meant to be. Um, so I love this. After all the debate and all the rest, um, there's one author named R.T. France that says, our ignorance of Hebrew architectural terminology at this point does not affect the sense of the quotation. The one rejected has become the most important of all. That's what we're to get out of this. The one rejected has become the most important of all. Whatever this stone is, we know it's important. We know it's huge. And if you don't use it for the building, it's not going to be worth or useful for anything else on the construction site except to get in your way. You either build on it or you stumble on it. Luke 20 elaborates, it says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Uh, There was this Jewish rabbi, I love, he wrote this. He said, um, if the stone falls on the pot, woe to the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. Either way, Woe to the pot, right? Woe to the one who comes against the stone. Back in my uh, youth ministry days down in Florida, we, uh, we took a, a retreat with my high school group up to North Carolina. And one of the, the day trips that we did was we did a, uh, a, some of us did a hike on the, the Appalachian Trail, just a day hike. And uh, it was up around Hot Springs, North Carolina. Some of you guys, oops, some of you guys have been there. Sorry, there it goes. And uh, you'll see some cliffs there on that left peak there. Um, you'll especially see some that are up high near the top. Maybe they're not quite as visible, but uh, that's called Lover's Leap. And it's this wonderful, you hike about four miles in and you come out to that view and you're looking out over hot springs and the whole valley. And, and um, the, I told the kids, when we, hey, when we get up there, just um, enjoy the view for a while, but don't go back down yet because that, then from that point, the trail does switchbacks all the way down, uh, down to the riverside. 
And I said, just let's just hang out here. Nobody go down yet. While we're standing looking out over this amazing view and you're standing on the ledge, um, one of my um, uh, high school freshman boys was just kind of uh, just inadvertently just kicking this, uh, this stone that was about probably two feet around. It was the size of a couple of basketballs, right? And um, I'm confident this was, this was very unintentional, but as he kicks it, it rolls. And it goes right over the cliff, falls about 40 feet, and then we hear screaming, just yelling and screaming and all the rest. Well, it turns out that two of my high school senior boys, uh, contrary to our, um, <laughs> to our instructions, had decided to start going down the, the switchbacks. And the switchback went right under the ledge. They'd stopped, and they were just hanging out and talking. They were standing about five feet apart, and as they're standing there, <laughs> the rock lands right in between them as they're standing there talking to each other. So immediate yelling followed by sobering silence <laughs> of what just happened, right? This enormous rock falls right between, if you can picture just having a conversation with someone, and out of nowhere comes a rock from 40 feet up. <laughs> um, it changed the tone of the retreat. It changed the tone of that freshman was not the same. for that. I mean, he felt horrific about it for um, weeks afterwards. I think he realized how close, there was no way you survive if this rock hits you. So, providence of God, praise the Lord, happy ending, I love youth ministry, yay, right? But, (laughs) the point is this, the stone is dangerous when discarded, right? The discarded rock becomes a rock that's capable of destruction. Um, I'm going to try this one out on you guys, first service didn't like this. The moral to the story is don't take the rock for granted. I got a sneeze out of that. Thanks, Jim. That was great. That's about all I got. Yeah, they didn't like it either. They, uh, sorry. Don't take it for granted. You can do that too. Wah, wah, wah. All right. Um, this is the t- I'm sorry. You guys look like you needed it. So um, this is the time of year when um, all of us, I think, uh, everybody kind of in some way or another checks into the Jesus story a little bit, right? Because it's Christmas, and so we all get a little bit of Jesus on a, on a Christmas card or maybe it's in the words of a song or we watch the interaction between Linus and Charlie Brown. It's, it's acceptable to have a, it's culturally acceptable to have a little bit of Jesus this time of year, but you recognize that all of that is just kicking the stone around, right? And sometimes we even get this sort of homing instinct. You, some of you here may be this today. You get this homing instinct around this time of year in December to, to come back to church because we recognize that there's something sacred about this time and we want to make sure that we get at the sacredness of, of the moment. And that may be you this morning. I'm confident that it will be and, and heading into Christmas Eve as well uh, for many of us. And if that's the case for you, and certainly I'm not just talking to you because all of us need to hear this, right? Um, there's a difference between kicking the stone around a bit and building your life around it. There's a big difference there. Um, everything else orients around the cornerstone, for starters, I think it's saying this, it's saying all the places where I, um, where I disobey God, all the places where I disagree with God and I'm pretty sure that I'm wrong and he's right, there are, those are places where I'm actually at war with him and I need the manger and I need the cross. I need those two together. I need God to send his son and then to provide a sacrifice. I need the son to be my, my peace treaty, to open my life up to something different, to open my life up to the, the love and acceptance of the Father. And from there, I think it's also saying something like this. It's saying, I'm accepting that I am not the captain of my faith, the master of my soul. I'm not my own authority. If this is true, then Jesus has authority in my life. 
He has the absolute right to call the shots. And my life, in fact, will joyously work better if I submit to that. It will. And that, this may be the moment for some of you th- this morning even to commit to trusting the Son, to building your life around that stone instead of just tripping over it and what he's done for you and the plans that he has for you and all the rest, right? And for all of us, I think in some way or another, it involves recommitting to the centrality of the authority of God in the, all the places where, where we've been trying to call our own shots because we all have areas in our life like that where we say, yeah, God, I'm pretty, pretty clear on what it means for you to be Lord over here, but, but this one's kind of, I'm calling the shots over here. And we need to say, no, the whole building's got to be built around the cornerstone, the whole thing. According to a, a Jewish legend, when the Temple of Solomon was being built, you've got a picture that there was the, the temple was built up high, and so down in the valley was where the masons were, were cutting the stones, and then they would, they would send them up, and uh, the builders up top would, would then arrange them in place. And, and early on in the seven-year process of building the, the temple, um, they sent up the cornerstone. The, but but the, when it got to the top, it was a, that's an oddly shaped stone. And when it got to the top, the, the builders actually looked at it and said, this thing doesn't fit anywhere. We don't know where this goes. Uh, this must have been a mistake, and they actually rolled it back down into the Kidron Valley. So a couple of years later, when it comes time, they actually uh, buzz down to the, the masons and say, hey, um, we're ready for the cornerstone. And they say, well, we sent that one up to you a couple of years ago. And they realized what it was, and they had to go back down into the valley and get it and bring it back up, right? You take a look at this stone, and you go, I don't see how this fits here. But I recognize that uh, in the end that this is the thing that everything else orients around. In fact, um, that stone, when they did bring it back up, it fit perfectly as the Masons had meant for it to. Wherever it is that you've been living as your own authority, uh, you've been living without Jesus in those areas. And all the places where we look and we say, you know, I really don't see how this thing fits here I don't really see where Jesus fits here. Those are the places where we really need even more to ask him to take center stage. A patient God sends his beloved son into the midst of our rebellion to declare what we're about to sing, to declare peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That is something that we are not astounded enough about. God and sinners, God and sinners reconciled all the places where I'm wrong, he puts Jesus in to make it right. Not that I would get my life all figured out, but that Jesus would stand in my place and my life would be built around him. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see all of the places where I don't have it all figured out. He sees, he sees a perfect son, a beloved son, standing in my place, right? I love the, the very last bit of that, that Psalm 118. I love, I think it could be our Christmas motto. <laughs> uh, it says, the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Would you guys just spend some time this week marveling over the fact that God and sinners, he and you, through Jesus, have been reconciled and live according to that. Let that frame much more than all the other stuff that can frame the next week of your life, the, the next hectic week of your life. No, instead, let that frame it. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Father, we, we long to uh, get this right uh, this week, Lord, um, to to glory in the things that deserve the most glory, to glory in the fact that you would do the unthinkable thing of sending your son knowing full well that we would treat him just like we treated all the other people who came representing you and threatening our own authority. And then, Lord, would you build us around Jesus? 
that it would frame our gratitude, it would frame our, our joy, it would frame uh, our sense of, uh, of worth, it would, it would frame our image, it would frame who we know ourselves to be, and that we would live according to that, Lord. We just pray that you would accomplish that this week in Jesus' name. Amen.